there's no company that's perfect, there's no individual that are perfect. So if you always just say good things, then you're, you're already propagating a lie. If there's anything I like to do is to bring uh, honor back to the recruiting industry by making sure recruiter go back to a, a sense of morality. Hi, welcome to The Resilient Recruiter. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm excited to introduce you to my special guest, Richard Hoon. Richard is the founder and CEO of iSearch Worldwide, and he's been a C-suite search practitioner for over two decades. Prior to launching iSearch Worldwide, Richard was the managing director of Asia for an international executive search franchise. Richard is also the current chairman of the Center for Fathering and Dads for Life, which is a registered charity in Singapore. And on a side note, he is also a co-founder of a fintech company called Validus that is now worth over $100 million in four short years since it uh, launched. So today, Richard and I discuss building an executive search firm with 10 offices in multiple countries, which he sold just a few years ago. And Richard shares a lot of his thinking and his philosophy and his strategies. In particular, we talk about why contingency recruitment is broken and why we as an industry need to move to a retained model and convert our clients to this way of thinking as well. We also discussed at length the challenges of dealing with internal recruiters and HR and why we must aim to build relationships at the highest level within our client companies. I'm going to let you in on a secret. This conversation was originally intended as a warm-up so that Richard and I could get to know one another and we didn't plan to schedule the actual interview a week or so later. However, it turned into such a fascinating conversation that I realized it would be impossible to replicate. So I decided instead of scheduling another formal interview, I would just release this conversation in its original form to you because it was so spontaneous and uh, so interesting that you get to eavesdrop on what actually was just a, uh, an informal chat between me and Richard. There's a bonus at the end. After the interview was over, we talked for another 10 or 15 minutes, first about Richard's passion for art collection, uh, and then he really opened up and he actually gave me a personal mentoring session on how to be an excellent father, which was hugely valuable. So although it's not related to recruiting, I decided to leave it in because if you're a parent or you're, you plan or wish to be a, a parent sometime in the future, then Richard's wisdom on this topic could prove to be extremely valuable. Hope you enjoy this spontaneous interview and uh, look forward to hearing your feedback. Let's dive in. Oh, hi, Richard. How are you? Good to, good to meet you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. You've got this um, organization that you're involved in about fatherhood. How did, you, how did you get involved in that? And what's the purpose behind that? Well, this, this is a 20-year-old charity. Okay. It was founded by a few fathers 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, I joined the board uh, maybe about 13, 14 years ago. Okay. I got involved with the organization maybe about 16 years ago. Okay. So they were fairly new. Uh, and then I became the chair probably about eight, nine years ago. Okay. So I'm the chairman. And, uh, and now we have added new wings to it called Dads for Life. Yes. Uh, and now we even have Mums for Life as well. You know? Oh, cool. So we get more Mums and Dads component uh, into it. Uh, so yeah, it's a charity. 
the, the goal uh, is to eradicate fatherlessness. You know, uh, every child is born has a father, but the father is not present, is not engaged, not active, right. uh, not contributing to the family. So the child grew up fatherless. Uh, right. And our job is to encourage fathers to be more active and engaged with their children, to arrest the, um, to arrest the rot, if we can call it, so that if they didn't grow up in a, uh, a family that had both the father and mother, component, then they can do that for their own children in the future and not continue this negativity. Um, and uh, Because the statistics for a child who grew up in a fatherless home, oh, the chance for them to be successful uh, in society is so remotely low. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Very low. I mean, if I wrote a statistic on you, you'd yeah. be shocked. You know, like 80% will leave high school, you know? Um, yes. Ninety percent will have teenage pregnancy. Uh, wow. Ninety percent will, will have divorced in their life. And so, how how what sort of initiatives does the um, does the charity? You know, how does it do its work? So uh, we do events, we do programs, we do training, we do father and child bonding camp. We encourage national events like eat with your family. So national, across uh, a certain day, uh, everybody, all the companies will close their, their office an hour earlier and release their staff to go back and dine with your family. It's very strategic. It's meant for you to stay. You can work hard, but yes. please spend time with the family, you know? Right. Uh, and then the Father's Day is a big celebration. Like this month in June, yes. uh, Father's Day is coming. We're going to have a national event. The government is working with us. They give us budget that we will continue to uh, showcase different great example of fathers uh, who, yes. who raise kids and in the beautiful family they have. So we have the national event and then below that we augment with training. So we have a bonding camp. We do, yes. uh, uh, um, we a father bring a child to a camp and spend yes. time together. Uh, or we have fathers who just date their children, uh, you know, one-to-one. Uh, I saw so your article about that. <laughs> so we have different tools yes. to equip fathers, you know. Wow, that's amazing. So wait a second. I wonder if we can, if we can time it, we'll release this for Father's Day and that way, and you will mention uh, the charity and have a link where people can learn about it uh, as well. Um, tell me, the, so are you targeting specifically situations where the father is completely absent or maybe they are, they have a father, but they're so Though maybe they're a workaholic, they don't engage enough with their kids or... Very good. Good question, Mark. It's a two-pronged approach. Okay. So our goal is very long-term. Uh, so we are trying to do, number one, the preventative before yeah. it, it falls into society. So the advocate, advocacy part is very crucial. And because we have done 20 years, we have seen the benefit of what we have done 20 years ago uh, with the fathers. So now we see fathers who are more engaged, more cool, to bring the kids out to carry the baby, to play with them in the park. It's very cool to be a, a good dad, you know? Right. Uh, whereas in the past, uh, you spend time with the children, you're supposed to be the macho man, go out and get a job and drink right. a beer with a buddy, you know? So yeah, yeah. That. So that is the advocacy part. But we also have to do the intervention. Okay. So, uh, for example, society, uh, we have, we have uh, children whose father is incarcerated. They are in jail. Right, of course. So how do we do events that we bring a child to the prison to see their father and we do events to engage them 
with wow. the mother. Okay. And then when the father sees a child yes. and realize their state of play, uh, they put remark like, if I ever get out of this prison, I vow never to get back in. Right. Because there's a purpose for them to live for. Yeah. Whereas in the past, if they go to prison, their family disown them. The yeah, mother sure. will tell the child, where did your father go? Oh, uh, he's, uh, he's dead or he's yeah. overseas. He's not around. So the child grew up in, in, in a situ- situation where there's no father. Yes. But then when they grew up, they realized the mother was telling them a lie. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. So we do the, the thing to, to help. This uh, are some. Uh, of wow. That sounds cool. Uh, Richard, what about a situation, <clears throat> excuse me, which is more and more common these days where there's maybe, um, you know, a same-sex couple. So it's two fathers or two mothers, but the child has two parents, basically. How, how do, what sort of uh, impact does that have or how does your charity relate to that situation? Okay. So our focus is not that particular group right now. Okay. Uh, we are trying to help essentially a, a, a father and mother who are married, they could mm-hmm. divorce, they could be divorced, separated, but how do you get the father back into the family still? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we have not gone to the uh, same-sex LBGT uh, group where they, mm-hmm. they adopt uh, their own children. I think that would be the future uh, uh, with it uh, because the, the need is so immense. So let's help the bulk first. And then the special interest group are smaller. We come and help them later on. Got it. Uh, All right. That makes sense. So Richard, um, looking, I, by the way, this is really helpful. I think we'll, we'll have a fantastic interview when we, when we uh, reconvene. Sure. Looking back over your career in recruitment, what are you most proud of or what do you feel have been some of your kind of key achievements? I think I was uh, proud of the fact that, number one, we started from zero. I remember when we started 25 years ago. Um, I was I was a corporate executive, you know. Yes. I was with uh, American Express and with International SOS. You know, I was a hired gun. And then when, but I decided that I want to steer my own ship. You know, at the age of thirty-seven, I said I want to, you know, uh, do my own thing. And buying a franchise was the best way. You you're you're entrepreneur, but you're not taking all the risks because you have a proven name and hopefully you have a proven system uh, to do it. So coming to Doug was the right association. And it was very, very good. And we started from zero. And from zero, we grew to 10 offices in Asia, all the way wow. from Japan, all the way to Southeast Asia. You know, that was very happy. I was very happy. And uh, I think those were our proudest moments. Because we, 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 we had other challenges later on when Doug sold the business MRI. And, and, and that, that becomes a learning lesson. But uh, that, that was my proud moment in, in recruiting. Uh, that is in the franchise recruiting. Uh, side of thing, the management side. But on a case-to-case basis, my proudest moment was seeing people who honor their word, you know, mm. uh, who, who make mistakes and own up. Um, and, and, you know, uh, how I can see character. Uh, uh, been, uh, you know, you, you really see the kind of person you're dealing with, not by what they say, but yes. what they do, yes. you know, their action, you know, the follow-through. And so I, I've learned over the years that... Uh, to find people who keep and honor their word over the years are rare. Uh, WG and I, 25 years relationship, are usually, you know, rare. And Doug is such a great guy. I mean, he, yeah. he, he makes it a point to keep in touch, um, even for no personal agenda, just to keep in touch, you know. Yes. And he's really, uh, he's a master guru, guru in relationship building and maintaining. Right. So I learned yeah. uh, from him. I'm proud of that kind of relationship. Long-term 
deep relationship. Mm. All right, that's amazing. So when you when you had ten offices, how many people were in your organization? We were, we at that time would have probably close to one hundred and twenty people. Okay, one hundred and twenty to one hundred and fifty people. I lost count. Some are bigger, some are smaller. Yes, uh, in 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 in, in, in uh, about one hundred twenty to one hundred fifty uh, people. Wow. In yeah. So one of the challenges. Do you know Greg Savage by any chance? No, I, I don't. Okay. He's, um, he's based in Australia, but he travels internationally in the recruitment space. Um, I'll send you his book. Uh, he, he's, he's written a book called The Savage Truth, which is, you know, his name is Greg Savage, so that's a good uh, title for him. Um, but uh, he ran, he's run international recruitment businesses, and, and uh, he's a sort of colleague and client of mine and, and become a friend over, over the years. Um, and I know from him, as well as other uh, clients I've worked with, that running an international business is a real challenge because you're not physically there. So how were you able to ensure that your other offices were successful because you can't be everywhere at once? Yeah, that is, that is a real challenge of a service business, especially in a business where your assets walk in and walk out every day. Yes. Yes. Okay. So you need really uh, partners, partners that you can trust, partners that have the same long-term philosophy, and we're only that word. That's why I use the word honor. Uh, and it's very rare. I think the the in my opinion, those who have that high watermark for honor in the recruitment business is really a minority. Okay. Uh, and so that is one thing I strongly believe in the recruitment business. Uh, has lost its uh, high grounding because more people are jumping in thinking that it's easy way up. Yeah. Uh, they say things they don't mean, they say things they don't know, and they uh, propagate a lot of untruth. Mm. And, and that is not a good thing. It, it, you know, uh, and I don't want uh, a recruiter's name one day being associated with a second-hand car salesman, you know? Right, uh, right. Uh, um, or maybe a little better, like a lawyer, you know, kind of, kind of, it would kind of a joke. It would have lost it, I think, um, and and we shouldn't. I think it's, this is a very honorable business because when you put people together, you got to really be responsible for their career, their future, but you're also responsible for the company yes. that uh, this person is going to go in, not just for your own well-being to say I got a fee and that's it. But unfortunately, the training in the recruitment industry or the lack of training, rather, uh, propagate a lot of uh, just short-term results. Uh, I'll hit my goal. If I don't get hit, I got fired. So I just do whatever it takes to do the deal. Right. I don't like that. Uh, and, yes. you know, I mean, I think a, a lone uh, voice in the wilderness preaching, you know, let's be honest and uh, let's tell the truth. Uh, and if a candidate is not so good, say it as it is. If the candidate has uh, shortcomings, say it as it is. Yes, uh, and and let the client decide. And and nobody is perfect. There's no company that's perfect. There's no individual that are perfect. So yes. if you always just say good things, then you're you're already propagating a lie. And so if I if there's anything I like to do is to bring uh, honor back to the recruiting industry by making sure recruiter go back to a centered sense of morality. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, that was that was my experience of starting in recruitment was um, 
very little training, uh, sort of, okay, Mark, there's a desk, there's a phone, go and make placements. And I could see that there was pressure because um, I could see people who were not performing and they were gone, right? So, right. and I, you had about three months to prove yourself Good. and to start, you know, pay, more than paying your costs within three months. Otherwise, you know, you were, you were history. So there was uh, people, lots of people, with little experience, um, little training, but high pressure and to perform and to, to, to do deals. And so that, that's not a, um, uh, uh, an environment that is conducive to people um, behaving to the highest standard, right? And uh, so... It, it also propagated by the industry as a whole. Yeah. When, uh, and it's a combination of many factors. Recruiting, recruiters who are not strong, or recruiting companies that are not strong, they propagate this concept of contingency. Right. So yeah. first men to the road... And, you know, they cannot be handling a dozen assignments and hope to place two or yes. one. And yes. so there's a lot of wastage. So when you have that, uh, you will not be thorough. You just want to take and throw, take and throw, and hopefully something stick. Exactly. That's so right. That number one issue in the recruiting industry when the, the amount of contingency offering out there is so much. But I think clients has to be smarter than that to yes. say that, look, I'm asking, you know, I have a piece of meat, for example, yes. and I have five wolves chasing for it. Right. You know, four of them are going to die, you know. Uh, with, <laughs> right? And so uh, the client propagate this. But, of course, uh, it comes from recruit that are not strong, having to offer that because they have no choice. They're not strong enough to offer, I'm a professional, you, you ought to pay me for my service. Okay? Yes. So we've got to be like a doctor, you know, where the client is prepared to say, well, if you're no good, I won't use you again, but I won't ask you to heal me first before I pay you. <laughs> right, right. You know? um, that's a great analogy. I, I like that. Yeah, um, so I think it's a combination of the both. And so I, I moved uh, from uh, that business, which is pure contingency, I moved into a pure retainer business. So I don't start work uh, unless the client pays me. So you, for you to have a retainer, you need to have a track record. Yeah, you know, and I'm not an international firm like like uh, Egon Zander or Russell Reynolds kind of uh, or or Hydrogen Struggle where they have this network to exchange uh, um, uh, referrals you know, on your own. So you got to stand on your own credibility, your track record, and your references from your client. So, but it's a long route. It's a long route, you know, uh, and a lot of people cannot take it. They will not survive it. But the market propagated it. So. I would like to, maybe idealistic in some form, but I'd like to see the industry go back to have a high sense of professionalism. I agree 100%. Of course, <clears throat> I think you're right. Recruiters have propagated this situation where we agree to contingency um, searches and then it is, you know, it, it creates unideal uh, context for all parties, the client, the candidate, and the, and the recruiter, um, which leads to maybe a poor candidate experience, clients who, you know, recruiters overpromise and underdeliver, clients are unsatisfied, but surely the client has to take joint responsibility for propagating that scenario, right? Because sometimes they won't accept this, you know, proposal to work retained, 
And, but then they're, they're not satisfied with the service and yet they're not willing to change the way they engage with their, their uh, search firm. So it's a, it's a chicken and egg scenario. Yeah. Yes. You know, recruiter wants to work retained because they understand that they can deliver a better service and they can be more thorough. Um, but it's also convincing the client. It's very easy. I, I, I don't think it's a problem. It's just whether there's a recruiter uh, knows how to pitch the business and you have a client that is enlightened and willing to change. Right. It's not, if you have never done business before, and the recruiter have a track record. Number one, show your track record. Be open and say, these are my client. Call them and see whether they're happy in my service. Yes. But since I'm doing with you for the first time, we can even do that. You've got to be exclusive. Mm-hmm. You've got to be over a period of time. You don't, you know, don't cut the table's uh, leg when I'm doing your work for you or the chair's leg you know, when I'm doing work for you. So commit to that. And I will work dedicated for you. This assignment is only directed to me. And let me finish it successfully. If you're happy with my service, the next one, you retain me. You know, you get rewarded for that. But the recruiter must be confident enough to say, all right, for the first case, I'm prepared to do it your way. But I'm not going to be going to a dog fight with everybody because then there is no way. It's bad for you because the industry, uh, the candidate is going to be confused. So many people are calling them. Who has the mandate of the client? Who, in fact, not only have the mandate, who is telling the truth? They don't know the information. So I think it can be done, but it needs a, a strong recruiter who can pitch that. And then it needs an enlightened client who says, yes, I'm prepared to, to do that because I'm looking for the best. And you're not proven enough to do the best, but if you are, I'm prepared to go with you. The recruitment industry is going through a time of unprecedented challenge. And all of us have been affected to a greater or lesser extent. From what I can see from my vantage point, speaking to hundreds of recruitment business owners around the world, for the vast majority of recruiters, this is a very painful time. What about you? Do you have a plan for the next 30, 60, and 90 days? All of my clients have a plan to navigate this crisis because I've helped them to create one. I've survived multiple economic cycles, including the dot-com bubble, the crash after 9-11, the great recession of 0809. And listen, I know this is different to anything we've seen before, but based on my past experience, I'm confident that I'm getting through this in decent shape and I'm determined to bring my clients with me. So if you're ready to be proactive instead of reactive and you're open to getting some guidance and support, And you're invited to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. I will be focused on helping you to get clarity on your situation and create a plan for moving forward. By the way, I don't have all the answers and I'm not promising miracles. I can promise you'll leave the call feeling focused and re-energized with a solid plan for moving forward with or without my help. Once again, it's www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. I'm playing devil's advocate here, Richard, because I believe 100% what you're saying. And in fact, um, for the last 20 years, one of the things I've been training recruiters on is how to win retained searches and uh, transition away from contingency. So it's something I'm very, very evangelical about and, and passionate mm-hmm. about. Um, the objections I hear from recruiters, you know, when I suggest this is, well, you know, that's all very well for senior appointments, um, but I'm in the mid-level and, um, 
often I'm working with a talent acquisition or an HR person, and they don't like this idea because they're very wedded to their process. They've got a preferred suppliers list of vendors, and they have they you know send each uh, job out to all of their list of suppliers, and they're not the one with the problem or the one experiencing the pain uh, and who can be enlightened, let's say. So, you know, a recruiter in this scenario, now, and if they go to the senior uh, leadership of that company, then they get blacklisted and cut off as a, as a supplier. Okay. So then they're some, often the temptation, now for me, I would work hard to educate and help to enlighten that HR professional as to how it is in their best interest to, number one, give me access to the senior leaders to better understand, you know, everything to do with that, uh, that search. But number two, um, if they would not agree, then I'm out. I'm, I'm not going to take the client on board. Mm. Um, but that's maybe easy for me to say, but you know, some recruiters, they, they want, they're really hungry for that business and they feel like, well, it's better way from that scenario, then I've got nothing. What's, what, what would you say to someone who's in that, you know, that sort of mindset? Uh, very valid question. So you're right. Retainer are not possible across. Uh, so I, I, I'll do the comment in two parts. You know, the first part is the fact that uh, it is, uh, it is uh, uh, for, the, for the senior role. However, that is even been encroached today. Okay? Uh, this contingency uh, disease is going up to the senior role too. And, and you have companies like the big firm that I'm t- telling you about are prepared to do contingency too, you know, which is scary because it's just a sign of desperation. Right. Okay. Uh, now, so that part should be protected, you know, uh, area. Now, for the middle market, it's a different ballgame altogether. When the company begins to structure having resourcing uh, directors or resourcing uh, managers who are ex-recruiter, bring them in. Now, it goes on this mindset that, hey, if I'm paying so much uh, millions or hundreds of thousands of dollars in recruiting fee, let me hire somebody in and I don't have to pay that fee, Right. And right. so they put a gatekeeper in uh, yes. to do so. But they are so wrong because this person, it becomes really a gatekeeper and it doesn't add value because a, recruiter, a resourcing manager cannot be doing 10 projects, 20 projects with all internal time. So they land up outsourcing uh, to recruiter right. and they become the, the gate and they add a layer of complication. Right to the hiring authority because words get transmitted and lost. And the worst thing is some of these former recruiting executive had gone in, they've been on one side selling, now they're trying to buy, and they, they make life a bit difficult. And they forgot they were there before. Instead of educating, they become really very tough. And because they have so much work to do, they don't relay the information correctly. Now, if you don't know and you say, I don't know, it's okay. But if they don't know and they tell you, things that were not true and you get led wrong way and then the manager is waiting and says why are you giving me all bad guys and that's because the resourcing manager is telling them all the wrong things but they don't know that this is this gatekeeper is the problem so i think the resourcing uh, concept where things 
that the, uh, the company thinks from a monetary perspective is helping them, actually it's not. Okay? Uh, I think we should bring back uh, recruiting to the line manager, just like HR, human, uh, human resource management is a line manager's function, not a HR function. Uh, more, hiring your staff, retaining your staff, motivating your staff are all a line manager's function. HR just facilitate. Okay? If companies realize that, hey, if you lose people, it's your fault. If you don't get people, it's your fault. Then I think the hiring manager will now take on their personal responsibility. They say, look, I want to work with a recruiter because you, know, you don't have to tell me all, all this standard terms because you know, it's like I have cancer. And you say, all right, you can only use these three doctors. And you know, my cancer is a different type and I need a specialist. And you're, you're restricting me. I'm going to die because you know, this three doesn't have the competency. Same thing in recruitment. You know, they give this one size fit all. So it becomes actually a pandemic now. It's getting more and more and more with this kind of cost-centric uh, approach to recruiting. They measure them at KPI. Yes. However, you know, a staff being recruited you never measure by the amount of fee you pay. You measure by the amount of contribution the person can make after you pay the fee, you know, and the salary. But, you know, who's going to tell employees? You've got to tell them. And an enlightened employer will know. So to be recruiting, you've got to reach the top because top management understand, and then they're going to push it down. But if you expect to push from bottom up through the resourcing manager, it is impossible because everybody has their own turf to protect and yours is the last one you protect. You're so right. That I, that's explained really, really well, Richard. And <clears throat> as an example, I've got a client in the States. He specializes in treasury recruitment, quite specialized. Um, only large companies need a treasury function. So he's dealing with large corporations. Um, and in many of these companies, the HR or talent acquisition department is very, very powerful and territorial, and they often will, um, the, the, the managers, the, the hiring managers will be intimidated by, you know, maybe the global head of resourcing is more senior in the organization than the hiring manager. So there, he was telling me one case where on, uh, based on this, the candidates that were being introduced via the resourcing function, he'd done 20, I think 25, more than 25 interviews and not hired anybody because they were the wrong people. How much wasted time to, on so many people involved in identifying and then bringing 25 candidates in for interview and no result yet. Um, and yet he was not allowed to in, give the mandate to my client to instruct them to go and do the search, even though that was a specialist in, in this area. Um, he was not allowed. And so <clears throat> I think for your approach to work, it really does have to be at the top. top. And, and then the person who has the, um, who's the policymaker who can decide actually for these, this type of search, we will use a specialist and, you know, and, and, and so on. Um, you know, if there's anything radical I would suggest, uh, if you want to have a resourcing head, a resourcing head cannot report to HR. Can you believe me? It has to report to the CEO because one of the mandate of a CEO is finding talent. Right. Companies need a few things, three things to work. You need 
a great idea, which means a great product. Then you need financing to market and to develop that idea, the product. And these two are abundance. Great ideas, everybody can think of one, everybody can design a better product, I mean more. And money is abounds. There are money chasing ideas all the time. The missing link is the third one, is people that can execute the idea with the money. And, but companies don't realize it. So the CEO spent a lot of time getting people to develop ideas, getting people to fund it. So they spend a lot of time with the CFO funding it, but they don't spend enough time finding the talent. They leave it to HR and they shouldn't. Mm, absolutely. So, wow. Great um, insight there, Richard. So um, you've been successful kind of building uh, an international multi-office search firm. And um, what are you doing these days? Are you still uh, active or? Well, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm 63 right now. And okay. so it's for me to smell the roses and join my, myself and do something <laughs> of significance and of eternal impact, you know? And so uh, I still do some recruiting. Uh, I don't manage 10 offices. I sold them all uh, with it uh, because, you know, uh, size uh, does not have its benefit all the time. Okay. Mm-hmm. The bigger you are, the more challenge you have. Uh, and if you don't have the right systems and philosophy put in place across, then you're going to have a lot of uh, unhappiness and everybody running 10 different directions, especially when you, you manage people like a recruiter who is successful. If they're successful, their ego is big. And therefore, they want to do it their way. And, you know, just because you're a recruiter doesn't mean you can manage a business, but they don't understand. It's like a doctor who thinks that I'm a great doctor, I can, I can be an administrator of a hospital, you know. It's a different thing, all right? So uh, I think uh, given uh, where uh, uh, the business is, I begin, I, I thought that it cannot be long-term. I, I should uh, cash out and sell it. So I've been selling it and I sold it all uh, before I turned 60, you know, uh, and then begin to develop my, I mean, I was already doing my practice in, uh, in, in retain. And so I'm, I'm just doing it now because my client asked me to, you know, they, they know that I can do it. I can deliver. They will call me and say, Richard, we need your help. And this mandate will either come from a chairman or a CEO of a company. Uh, I, I don't deal with the lower, I mean, the, the, the other levels uh, beyond the direct hire authority. So for me, I define a hiring authority as one who has the three M's, I think, if, if I remember correctly. Uh, uh, who, uh, I call it uh, no, M-A-N, okay? If, if you want to fact, like, they must have the money. That means they must have the ability to approve your budget. They must have the authority to say yes and they must have a need, okay? So the middle manager always have a need, but they don't have the authority to say yes. The authority to say yes means, if I need to pay higher than the normal, I will pay, okay? And then the money means I have the means to pay for your fees and everything else. Most middle manager will have the first two, but doesn't have the money. When I reach to the person, sometimes the HR have the money. They, they have authorization to approve. Okay. The need is at the line manager and the authority to hire has to come from either HR or from that or big company. That's possible too. Okay. But ideally it is with a CEO 
that has the money, the authority, the need. Then I deal with them. So most of my clients today are in that category. If not, then I can't because you will have problems uh, down the line. I've seen it now. And the industry is at this stage now. Uh, I think in my lifetime, it's not a change. So why fight a trend that's going to go negative? Let it reset like, like the COVID-19. Let, let the world be reset and you come back later on and do it a different way. Makes uh, total sense. But so that's I spend my time. That's why I'm doing the charity and doing other social concern and work. But, you know, I was about to put a note to you when you asked that, what are some of the things I do? At the right old age of 60, I co-founded a fintech company. Oh, cool. Yeah. So for, for 20 years, uh, for, almost 20, for almost 20 years, I was only in one business and one business alone, and that was in the high-touch business, you know, which is a people business. And I stay focused. I didn't try to do other things. I had a lot of ideas, but I said, no, stay focused and build a business. That's why I built the 10 offices and sold it off. And then, you know, when I was in my late 50s, after 20 years, uh, the idea came and it was from a high touch to a high tech. So we, we, we co-founded a fintech company that's doing quite well. It's the online platform, peer-to-business lending. Um, and that company, that I can share with because, uh, you know, uh, we started from zero uh, with a few of my partner, you know, and today it's worth uh, over $100 million uh, as a market cap uh, company over uh, Four years. Wow, four years. That's phenomenal. Uh, that is more than my, my recruiting business when I did it for 20 years. You know? Wow. And so what, what's the business called? Uh, it's called Validus. B-A-L-I-D-U-S. Validus Capital. And it's a, a peer lending platform. It's a, peer, it's a peer to business lending. So peer to business. Okay. So we have people who you know, put money and become bankers. Yeah. Uh, and then we onboard companies and then if they find the right deal they're happy with, then they'll just lend them. And then the platform take a cut from their interest revenue uh, that we do. We, we only do uh, accounts, civil financing, invoice discounting, very targeted kind of a, a document to help uh, SMEs. Um, and we are in three countries right now, Singapore, Indonesia, and Vietnam. And, uh, and then we're going to you know, Thailand, part of the ASEAN uh, tour we're going to go. You know, I was a uh, co-founder, uh, but when we had our Series A investor, I stepped away from it because they need the executive team and we hired a team in to run it. So, and then became, uh, uh, I was a chairman of the board uh, first and then became chairman of the advisory board and now they are too big. You know, they can't have it. So, I've, st- I've just stepped away from, from that. I was doing it formally. So, now I'm just a shareholder and seeing the, the, the baby grown and, you know, be a, be, be a young adult, hopefully. That's fantastic. I love that story. Um, Richard, what, one more question I want to circle back to is, um, you talked about the, comple- the, the challenges of having a, a larger business. Um, and this is a decision that all entrepreneurs are, need to make. Is this a lifestyle business where I have, you know, less hassle, less complexity, I can just have a high income and work on my own and enjoy what I'm doing. Um, but then I'm still on a hamster wheel, right? I have to keep working in order to keep earning and there's no exit point. I have to keep, keep doing that versus, you know, being maybe more ambitious and trying to build something that is, it takes on a life beyond the, the founder, um, which in the long term maybe has a bigger potential payoff, but means a lot more challenges along the way. What, so, 
how would you advise someone to make that decision? Okay. Now, I think the recruiting business general structure today, uh, except for the big global search firm, uh, is not effective, where they operate on an employee relationship. You know? So I open an office, I have a hire a, a director for the operation, and then he hires people, they have a commission structure, and they have a layer upon it. It doesn't work. Because people, after a while, feel that, hey, I can do it on my own. Why do I need the structure of the company? Especially if they are good. Because they don't understand that you need an organization behind you to support you. But nonetheless, it is relatively easy because the barrier to entry is low. Right. Uh, with it, you can link an account, you have a computer, you have a database, and you're good with people, you can start it off. Literally. From scratch. Now... The challenge is this, how do we grow as a business? I think we got to almost take the uh, account firm approach, okay? Where you, you, you go in and, and you work your level and then you became a junior partner or a, law, a global law firm, a senior partner. And after a time, you have to step off and then the next guy take over from you, okay? You be a partner, you buy into the partnership, and then you exit with a nice exit point. That's all you can do. You can't build a 10 offices in Asia and, and try to sell it. Gone are the days you can do that anymore. Because before you can sell it, everybody's going to jump ship. So you're proposing a structure more like an accountancy practice? Accountancy or a global legal firm, where they have a partnership arrangement, the partnership share in the contribution of the whole uh, firm. And then you have people who specialize in different areas, just a counter of different area of practice, uh, a law firm also have different area of practice, uh, and, and therefore recruiting also should have different practices, especially in the middle market. They must specialize. They cannot be a generalist in the middle market. Interesting. I wonder why more recruitment businesses aren't structured that way. In the UK, it's called a limited liability partnership, LLP, um, and it's a different corporate structure. Um, and, but I don't see that. That's interesting. I wonder why. Because the uh, owners don't want to give up their equity. Okay. Aha. Uh-huh. Right, right, so you, right. You have to make your mind, right? Do I do a million pounds and it's mine or I do a hundred million pounds and I probably own, you know, 10% of it. Right. Okay. Right. That's interesting. It's a quantum game. It's not a percentage game. Yeah. I don't understand that. It, can you repeat that? It's a what game? It's a quantum game. Quantum not, game. What do you mean by that? In other words, uh, it's amount. You know, it's ten percent of hundred million better than hundred percent of one million. Of course. Yeah. So it's, it's amount, not percentage. Right. So you can dilute your percentage, but owners always feel that if I'm less than fifty-one percent, I'm not owning the company. Mm-hmm. But technically, when you have recruiting business, you don't own the company. They own. They feel that they own the company. Interesting. So coming back to the original question then of um, deciding, do I want to be a, a high earning solo you know, uh, practitioner or do I want to build some kind of, whether it's a partnership or whether it's a more traditional structure and go down that route, um, what, you know, what advice would you give to someone who's kind of grappling with that decision you're talking about owner or a recruiter? The, the, the owner. Well, the founder. So they, you know, they could just do what you're doing now. Be, you know, pick and choose the assignments, 
you know, do the ones they're excited about and, uh, and make good money, or they could try and really build something. Sure. I think if an owner is uh, successful and have done it for many years, it's very hard for them to give up. Right. So uh, they almost have to realize that it's going to be a time when the moment their hands is off the tail, uh, the income is going to drop and the business is gone. The business will die with them because they are the face, they are the competency behind it. They are the okay. soul of the organization. So don't try to outlift it, okay, uh, uh, with that. I, I think if they are, then they, they would be distracted. They'd be trying to find uh, money to come in to buy them and then uh, um, trying to keep the business alive, trying to burn both and they will fail. Because it's a business that is very transactional. There's a short tail in the revenue. Yes. Your assignment, your, your, a recruiting company in contingency cannot see beyond 90 days. Right. So how are you going to build a business? Whoever takes over from you, you know, can see 90 days of pipeline. Beyond that, they have to develop. If you are gone, how are they going to develop? So it's not some business you can hand over. It's like a medical doctor who is a cardiologist. He's going to die with him. He's gone, you know? Fair enough. That makes sense. That makes sense. I think, you know, I have... Uh, a number of clients who have done it successfully and they've built uh, an organization, but they decided right from the beginning, that's what they were going to do. And they came off the, they, they took their, their, you know, um, they came off desk as soon as possible and started building a team. They were not the face of the company. They, it's a different set of skills and a, a different mindset. So they knew from the beginning, we're not going to be the ones who are client facing we're not going to be the primary, you know, uh, uh, fee generators. Uh, our job is to build uh, a culture, hire amazing people, train them uh, to be successful and retain them as long as possible, C- put staff retention hooks in place so that people want to stay and want to work for us. And, uh, and that's so one, one uh, group of entrepreneurs I worked with, there's three guys, really smart, really hardworking guys. They've built a, a company up to about 150, 180 staff in, in three or four, four countries, I think. Um, but uh, they, didn't, they didn't build themselves for years and then try and grow a team. They knew right away that that's, that was their vision. So um, they didn't I mean, want to be there. Go ahead. Yeah, you can build that. So I consider this a medium size. You're not going to be a global player. Sure. You have a few cities, a few countries. That's all you can do, you know. Yeah. And just like me, I built 10 offices. It's a stretch for me already just to manage it. You know? Right. And, and the return after a while is not worth the hassle of having big revenue. You know, uh, I always say, you know, uh, sales is vanity. Uh, profit is reality. Cash flow is absolute necessity. Right. 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 So in the cash business, you, after a while, as you expand, you're investing more and more. And not all your recruiting uh, people are going to be producing. So you're putting good money on, into bad investment, so-called. Yes. So it's a cycle. It's a cycle. It's a trial and error. You know, hopefully, you, hopefully you hit a, a gold uh, dust person, but then you've got to keep that gold dust person uh, going on, right? So it's a vicious cycle. But you can build a medium-sized business and then sell it. Yes, you can. Uh, so you have two ways. Either you, you stay niche uh, very targeted, that means you go long, uh, but you're not going to go white. 
Or you go wide but medium. You will not be global. When I, when you ask me, my thinking was more global. You know, like Ernst and Young global. Uh, right. You know, uh, like a Hydrix who can go global. You almost have to have a partnership model where the partners come in and get out. But nobody can say, I built a global company, a recruiting company, I sold it. The closest I ever find uh, in a Europe, Europe situation was, I think James Kahn was the one who did quite well. Yeah. He was smart, he built a certain size, he was able to piggyback the global story and sold it to a private equity fund. At that time, the private equity fund was quite keen in this area. Okay. Now they are less keen because they see the perils that is depending on the person. You're right. You're you're. You said it earlier. Your biggest asset is you know the walking in and out of the office every day. And uh, so when if you're acquiring a business, there's no intellectual property. There's no patents. There's no um, you know uh, product. It's really the relationships that are owned by those individuals that make up the team, that's very hard to, um, yeah. To replicate. Or you do the uh, you do the dark UG model, which is a franchising model. Yeah. He's on them and he has a system and he, uh, he brings on board people who are not in business but want to be in the business, pay him. Yes. And therefore you, you have a network of names. And after a while, if you have uh, 50 offices around the world, yeah, somebody will see that, okay, I see a long tail in a royalty payment, and then I can buy the business. So that was successful in selling. James Khan was successful in selling a recruiting business. That was successful in selling a franchising recruiting business. Right. But two different businesses. But I have not seen a global company. I've seen regional have been sold, but never yes. global. Okay. You know, it's like, uh, can you find uh, Michael Page in so globally? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, Richard, I, I know you're very interested in art collecting. Why did how did that come about? <laughs> you can see my art behind. Yes. Me. Uh, me. Well, uh, it started when I got married at the at, at the ripe young age of 23. You know, uh, and I bought my first artwork for my uh, well uh, in my home when we have we were married and we have a matrimonial home at 25. So I bought the first art piece. Uh, is my Michael Heitzer, uh, American German descent uh, artist, and in fact, I, I can't afford to buy a print. I can't even buy the original. I just bought a print. You know, and it's called a collection of American masters, and I like it because I'm an engineer by training, but I have a very creative engineering streak. Uh, you know, I'm an atypical engineer. That's why I just stay in engineering yeah, with it. I bought it and I love it. It's still with me today. I still kept it. Along the year, I developed a passion for art. I believe in this, okay? So uh, a room filled with art is a room filled with thoughts, okay? Uh, and art stimulates creativity, just like uh, reading. There are only two things in my mind that stimulate creativity, uh, and that is reading a book and looking at art. Uh, why? Because when you read a book, you've got to translate the word to imagination. Okay? Mm -hmm. And then you, you will entertain. If you read the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings, it is never the same as watching the movie. In fact, those who read it, you know, find it's a lot better than the movie. The movie was very entertaining. 
okay, uh, uh, Andrew Jackson, I think, was the, the director. He yeah. did a lot of interpretation of it, and it was good. But the writer, uh, uh, Token, uh, he was, she was brilliant in writing the book, okay? R.R. Token, you know, who wrote the book, and you got to see the level of imagination this author has and the language that it created. So when you read, we are creative. Right now, we don't do a lot. Everything is processed from us through internet. You Google everything, and they're there, you know, and you, people click a video to, 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 to learn than to read. They don't read anymore. So number one, art is the same. Art is very static. Look at the art behind me, it's static. But this piece has been me for maybe uh, 15 years now uh, with it, and it's by Ernesto. See, look at that. Yeah, yeah. And this, I have others here, you know. I have others there, you can see that. And so this is my house, and you can see to the back, you can see other art sculpture as well. So um, when you look at a piece of art, it's the same piece of work for 15 years. But every time I look at it, it affects me differently. It stimulates me differently. Because it depends on my mood. It depends on what I'm observing, what I'm seeing on that day. And so when I look at my house, it's like a walking entertaining center. You know, I, I can continue to be stimulated by the art. So I love art. Number one, not only is colorful for the house and, and soften the whole house, but for me, it's just continue to stimulate me creatively and also give me peace and calm when I, I see it. That's why I love it. And I see the creative work of an artist, how they can translate paint, pigments and paint on a canvas of paper, which is worth dollars, a few dollars, into millions of dollars. How did they do that? That is a great creative, uh, creating a value, right? That's absolutely true. Do you think, I mean, what, how important is creativity in recruiting? Because I don't see a lot of imagination or creativity in, in this industry. Um, is, you know, to what extent is an advantage to really think creatively? Oh, it's so advantageous. You are. Number one, the challenges posed in the recruiting industry is never static. Mm -hmm. Because you are having two things that move all the time. A client, a hiring manager that moves, a candidate that moves, a company that moves, and a situation that moves. There's nothing static. You know, it's not like buying... Uh, uh, an iPhone that you know that I have this features, it should be there. No. So the only thing that's constant in the recruiting industry is change. And because it's constantly changing, you have to be very resourceful to constantly evolve your solution. I can't give you a 10 point and say, do this. You got to use the 10 point and apply it in different situations. So in training in recruiters, I will tell them, these are my toolbox. Okay, you learn the toolbox, you learn it well, but don't think Every solution, you've got to apply the toolbox. You've got to be smart to say, what, which toolbox do I use? And how do I put it together to solve it? So you've got to be creative. Love it. Be honorable. Because if you're creative and not honorable, then you tell all kinds of license. Fantastic. Richard, thank you so much for your time today. This has been brilliant. I've really enjoyed, uh, really enjoyed meeting you. Take right. care. Take See care. You Thanks a lot. Right. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.